Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine. Um, I'm the hospitality coordinator at Imago, and we're going to read from 1 Chronicles 13, 1 through 4. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David also said to all of the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not see it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the right for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My first 10-ish years of uh, ministry was spent as a youth pastor. And that might explain things about me, for you. I don't know if it does. But when I was a youth pastor, you learn a lot of things. You learn... Uh, to reject a steady diet of Little Caesar's pizza. You assume that maybe you need to uh, grow up a little bit in certain ways. But as a youth pastor, you know, sometimes I reflect on that season and I think, as I think ahead to all we have for us at Imago and all of the amazing things that are ahead, I do look back on that season of that time in students' lives and I ask the question, was that some of the most like, important work that I'll ever do was during that time? One of the things I learned during that time was that students were often asking the same questions as adults, but they were phrasing it in really, really blatant ways, really blatant ways that kind of helped illuminate the struggles that adults were having. The only difference between a child and an adult is the ability to hide. And when you're younger, you just can't hide some of these things. One of the questions that students ask me all the time was this question, like, Why, if God is real, why is it so difficult to sense his presence? If God is real, why is it so difficult to sense his presence? They'd ask this in all sorts of ways. How come I don't feel God? How come I don't sense him? How come I don't know for sure that he's here? How come I can't see him with my own eyes? And then we would take them to camp or a missions trip or a retreat. And if you have any youth ministry baggage in your history, you know about the camp high It's just kind of this big feeling you'd get through the week at camp where you'd feel so close to God and then you'd come back and definitely not feel that way. But the longer I follow Jesus and the longer that I just live as a human being, I realize these students were asking the question that really, man, if you showed up today, you're probably asking this kind of question. I don't know how you showed up today. Maybe you showed up today as a Christian, but you're asking this question of like, why don't I really feel that God is really near to me? Or if you're maybe spiritual, but you're not really a committed religious person, you wouldn't consider yourself religious, you'd just say, I'm just kind of hanging out at Imago, I'm just trying to discern who God is. It might be more vague, but it's still related. If God is real, how come I don't sense him or know his presence uh, fully all the time? And maybe you were tricked here, and you're an agnostic, an atheist or something, or you're a skeptic, and you're thinking potentially, If God is actually real and I don't sense him, I don't think he's real. 
wherever you find yourself in that place, Advent is a perfect time to talk about that, sens- that human sensation. It's really a human sensation. The sense of God's presence, his nearness. Is he near? Is he far? Advent is a perfect time to think about this. Advent is the time leading up to Christmas Day. It's the start of the church calendar. Churches throughout all of history and across the globe are in this season of anticipation. That word, Advent, is a Latin word, and it means arrival. And really, it's talking about this Acknowledgement of the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago, baby in a manger, Bethlehem, some of the stuff you know from Charlie Brown theology, all the way to this anticipation that God will one day arrive again in glory to come and renew creation and bring us the peace that we know he is bringing. And Advent is about a time of acknowledging we live in between two arrivals. We live in the anchored hope of the arrival of Jesus Christ in the manger, in Bethlehem, the real incarnate son of God, born of a virgin, and the arrival of Christ to come, who will come and renew all things. Advent is a great season of tension. Where is God? Is he here? Well, he, and just like Advent says, he came and he'll come again. Advent's kind of that way. I know I've sensed God before. I don't sense him now. Will I sense him again? That tension is, 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 is what Advent is really all about. Last week, we explored that God appears to us in the tension and the darkness of waiting. That God actually arrives in darkness. That God shows up in the dark. That at creation, he showed up in the dark. To Abraham, he showed up in the dark. And as Jesus, he showed up to a people waiting in the darkness. And we talked about how God's arrival in our waiting is a form of his arrival within the dark things. But today, I want to explore how God and his presence, yes, it operates in his own volition and his own revelation of him bringing himself to us, What we saw in our teaching text was a moment of a man not waiting for God to come to him, but him taking God into the center of his people. That was 1 Chronicles 13. And you're probably thinking, how do we have a Christmas message out of 1 Chronicles 13? here's, Here's what I love about this passage. This is a text of a bizarre moment in the history of the people of God. It tells us about a time where God comes into the midst of the people, not by God's will, but by a man's will, David. Did you notice in this text what happens? He brings the ark into the center of the people and he tells the people, we've ignored God. We've ignored his presence. And I want to direct you, people of Israel, David says, to the fact that God is always here. Because one of the main misconceptions we have about God's presence is that it comes and goes. We have this idea that God is here or not here, that God is uh, in, in, this, in our midst or not in our midst. But David brings this ark to the forefront of the people to tell them something radical about God's presence. God doesn't come and go. We do. God doesn't bring his attention to us and leave his attention from us. We do. We bring our attention to God and move our attention from God. We actually bring our acknowledgement of God's presence to our acknowledgement to other things. And could it be in Advent a wonderful time to reconsider our relationship to God's presence? 
Is it really us about just waiting and waiting for God to come and go? Or is it also about our will? Is it also about something we can do, something that God has given us to do? You see, God arrives in our waiting. God also arrives in the darkness of our confusion about what to do. In First Chronicles 13, it's mentioning some things that require a little bit of background. An ark, a tabernacle, David the king. The people of God through this time have always met with God through his arrivals to them. I kind of outlined this a little bit last week, but in creation, at the very start, you could open your Bible in Genesis 1.1, it says that darkness was over the face of the deep. The, the, uh, the created order was without, without form and it was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then God says, let there be light. So God is both present in the darkness, hovering over the waters and says, let there be light. Then that same God who was in the darkness at creation saying, let there be light, later, 12 chapters, calls a man Abraham who is worshiping false gods and says, come follow me to a foreign country and I will bring you prosperity. He arrives to the darkness of the false worship of Abraham and brings him out of that. That same God met Moses in Exodus when Moses was running from God, a murderer on the run, and it says that he was on the west side of the wilderness, which in translation for us can be in the middle of nowhere. He was in the middle of nowhere. And God came to him on the west side of the wilderness, called Moses to lead God's people out of the darkness of slavery and move God's people into the light of his freedom. One thing you've got to know about God is he ain't afraid of the dark. God is not afraid of the dark. And in fact, there's a misnomer in some of your minds that God is a, is, cannot be around sin. Maybe you've heard that before, that God can't be around sin. He can't be around darkness. Um, no, it's the other way around, right? Sin can't be around God. Darkness cannot be around God. But God is always into the dark. He's, 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 he's working his will and his way into the dark to bring light into it, to transform it. And when he brings his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, out of the slavery they were in, God makes instructions for how his people will relate with him. He says, I am always with you. I will never leave you. Do not be afraid here's how we will relate together. And he makes instructions, and that's probably the part of your Bible reading plan you skip. That's okay. I'm here to help you not skip it. Right after the people of God hear the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, God starts to unravel certain laws that are helping them understand the boundaries of his relationship with them, of how they will relate with him, through things like consecration or cleansing themselves, through sacrifices of animals, through specific place of his resting, this thing called the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, which was like a temporary tent structure that went around the Ark of the Covenant. And this is God's invitation. This is where I will rest. This is how you will relate with me. This is how you will know me. Exodus 25, 21, he outlines it. This might've been the part of your Bible reading plan you skipped. And you shall be, or you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. This is this structure, um, this small structure of the ark where the, the tablets of the commandments of God would be kept. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give to you. There I will meet you. That's the important part to say. There I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God is telling his people, I will show up in this way at this time through these means. God is saying, you're going to meet me on my terms, on my terms, in the tabernacle where the ark is. Now, if you know the rest of the story of the people of God, do they always do this? 
No, they do not. In fact, one of the key things happening throughout the history in your Old Testament is that the people of God are constantly trying to find other ways in which they can meet with God or ignore him altogether. Which brings us to 1 Chronicles 13, when they neglect God altogether. 1 Chronicles 13, the second half of that teaching text that was read so beautifully by Catherine, says this, then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. David makes this command, right? For we did not seek it. Now, some of your translations actually say, we did not seek him. We didn't seek God in the days of Saul. Who was Saul? The predecessor, this is David's father. The predecessor to David's administration as king was a, was a time where they ignored God's presence and they ignored the ark. He said, we did not seek the ark in the days of Saul. And all the assembly looks around and says, this is probably the right thing to do. There's this annoying thing in, when you're reading your Bible. It's like the same story over and over again. God clearly tells his people, this is how you will meet with me. This is how we will engage in relationship. And the people go, cool, bro. And then they leave. They move on and they do their own thing. As God gives them their own instructions, he, they tell them, we don't need you. And they move on from him. And then disaster, division, war, strife, political turmoil, terrible things happen. And then the people come back to God and they bring God back to the center of their life. And you'll notice through the story of the Old Testament, a continuation of what I started with, which is this thought. Could it be not that God is coming and going, but could it be that his people are coming and going from his presence? Is it really God who moves? Is it really God who leaves? Is it really God's presence that come and go, comes and goes? Or is it us? David, through his own act of will, drags the ark to the center of the people. I just think it's fascinating. And he says, this is our priority. Our priority is the presence of God. Now, looking at this story, a simplified version and kind of thinking about it in today's context, it raises to me kind of three questions for us to push us in to this meditation we have today on this teaching text. These are the three questions. How does God tell us we can see and relate with him? Because we are not ancient Israelites. There ain't no ark here. I'm not about to bring something out from the backstage and bring it here in the front, forefront. We don't have that. But think about what David was thinking about. How does God tell me that I'm going to see and relate with God? What does it mean for us to ignore the very way that God told us we would see and relate with him? And then finally, how can we prioritize seeing and relating with God? Because if there's something up to us of what we could do to find the presence of God in our midst and the fact that God is always present, we should probably do it. If there is a priority, we should probably make it our priority. To answer these questions is to find a way in which God may not be hiding after all. Maybe for you today, again, you came in wondering, why does God kind of feel distant? Why does he come and go? Maybe by answering these questions, we would realize God is actually in our midst. Just like David said to the people, God has always been in here. We've just ignored him. Could there be a way in which God has always been present with us, but we've been ignoring him? You know, scripture tells us, seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. Scripture says, seek the Lord and live. Scripture says in James chapter four, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But there's something that happens in our adult life where we just think, maybe not. Like I've tried that. 
I've gone to church and I've been hurt by the church. I've gone into community and I've been disappointed by community. I've read the Bible and it's become dry. I've tried to pray, it doesn't happen. I've done the stuff. I've done the work that maybe I've been asked to do and God is still gone. And some of the uh, academic circles around Christian belief, one of the things challenging Christian belief in like academic philosophy is something called divine hiddenness. And it's essentially this. It's essentially the struggle many Christians deal with all the time. It's this. If God is real, how come it's not more obvious that I sense him every day of my life? That experiential argument is gaining some traffic in academic philosophical circles right now. If he's really real, God should be more obvious. Why is he seemingly hiding? And there are wonderful rebuttals to this on the Christian philosophical side, really great scholars teaching on it, the misunderstanding of divine love, the role of creation as revelation, all of these things. But a lot of it's ignoring something obvious to me, which is where in the Bible are we told we would see God? Have you ever thought about this? Where in the Bible is it telling you you will see God? God, te- uh, God shows us in scripture a few things. L- look at these. In the incarnation, right? In John 1.18, it says, no one has ever seen God, but we see him in Jesus. It's one reason Advent is a special time because we consider the coming of God in Christ, the son of God incarnate. And in the incarnation, which means the putting on of flesh of the living God, we do see God. Read your gospels and you'll see what God is like. Uh, I love that, Hebrew, that Hebrews passage, uh, one, chapter 1, 1 and 3, says that actually God used to reveal himself through prophets, but now he reveals us himself through the life and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We also see God in the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That's really where we're constantly thinking about um, God's presence, right? Do I sense him in my experience? And it's true, we do, we do. And in creation and nature, right? Psalm 19 famously says, like, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Um, Romans 1 says that his, his divine attributes have been made known in what we see in creation. But all of these things are great. But there's one place that we are told we will actually experience the risen and known Jesus that's not often talked about. And it's in other human beings, specifically in those with material, who are experiencing material poverty. Proverbs 19.7 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Let me repeat that. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. It's equating the financial contributions that you give to someone who doesn't have as much as you to Yahweh. (laughs) If you lend to the poor, you are lending to Yahweh. And it says that God will repay him for his deed. We see God in people. We see God most specifically in those who are materially poor. You want to see the face of Jesus. You want to see Jesus. You can look in the faces of those who have less than you materially. When we see even Jesus, you know, I told you, one way to see God is through the incarnate son of Jesus. Well, go look at Jesus in the gospels and look where Jesus tells you to look. Matthew 25, maybe if you're thinking about that, you're in the right place, you're tracking with me. 
Jesus says this. Where does Jesus tell us we're going to see him most clearly and obviously? In Matthew 25, he says, the son of man, when he comes again, so he came once in Bethlehem, he'll come again to renew all of creation. And when he arrives again in the second advent, it says that he'll come and he'll sit on his throne with his angels and before him will be gathered all nations. This is Matthew 25, 31, 32. And he will separate people as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he'll look at the sheep on his right and say, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you. He looks at a group of people, he says, come and inherit the kingdom. Four, verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food, Jesus is saying. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Look at this, 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, Jesus, God Almighty, when did we see you? Weren't you hiding? Aren't you the God who's the God of hiddenness? When did we see you? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the King Jesus will answer this, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you actually did that to me, Jesus says. When will we see God face to face? When will we know that he's present? We see God and know he's present as we enter into the relationships with people who have less than us. This is a shocking theological reality. It doesn't get nearly as much weight. Talk about existence for God, where is God? A lot of that academic talk is divorced from the real reality of material poverty. A lot of the talk about philosophizing about where God is and what his existence is is divorced from the reality of our brothers and sisters in this city who have less than us. That conversation is often one they're excused from or never invited to. And yet the scriptures tell us, you want to find God? Do you want to find Jesus Christ? Are you seeking God? I'm glad you came to church, but you might need to go to the streets. You might need to go to a place where Jesus told you to go to find him. That's his word to us, not mine. That's his word. Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 20 was the one who said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. And verses later says, woe to you who are rich. Woe, what's woe? It's kind of a divine chastisement. Woe to those of you who are rich. I hear these scriptures and I immediately need to right now out myself as one who is rich. As one who is rich, I own a home in Portland. That alone puts me in a place of riches and poverty, just, uh, of, of riches uh, against poverty just in the city, just because I own a, own a home in the city. If we flush a toilet, if we have a toilet that can flush, globally we're rich. But in this city, I think if we don't have to have anxiety about where we will sleep for the next month or two, we have more than most folks. And sometimes we can get really technical about these terms. Well, I'm not, Chris, I'm not rich. You know, I don't got it like that person. I don't got it like this person. But just thinking very, very plainly about what God has given us, a lot of us have to realize we have much. And the way that we might be invited to be seeing God is through those who have less than us materially. Because in the New Testament, 
let's not mince words. In the New Testament, to be rich, as I am, it places me at a spiritual disadvantage. There's something, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom, like the doors are open to them. There's some kind of spiritual advantage that those who have less materially are given. And those who are given a little bit more are at a spiritual disadvantage, but a material advantage. When are we going to see Jesus? Not just in Bible studies, not just in community groups, not just in church services, worship songs. Yes, you will meet God here. I pray every, every week that you, when I'm praying for you as you're coming in, I am praying that God, please meet us as your people. God, show us who you are. God, reveal yourself to us. God, turn our blind eyes into the attention that we need that your Holy Spirit is radically here. I pray that all the time. But friends, even though he will meet you in those spaces, God waits to meet you amongst those in material poverty. He waits to meet you there. He told us to look at the faces of hungry folks and people in prison. And he says, when you see them, that's seeing me. They asked him that question. Where did we ever see you? And he didn't say, oh, you know, it was at church. (laughs) You missed me. He didn't say, remember that Bible study you intended in 2007 and you studied that one passage and you were kind of tuning out and you were texting on your phone? I was there, sorry. No. He says, you pass by people every single day that bear my very image. And because they bear my image and because they have materially less than me, that's me. The very gospel of Jesus is being preached to those like me with very much. It's being preached from the margins to me. It's being preached from the poor to me. You see, a lot of times in Western thought, we think, we are preaching the gospel to the poor. (laughs) But it's the good news of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is inherited. It's like, think about an inheritance, right? It's like some, in documented writing, who's gonna get this? Uh, Jesus says that it's the poor that are gonna get it. And so if if it's theirs, (laughs) if it's theirs to be inherited, um, if I wanna experience it and I wanna know it, I have to engage in relationship with people who have less than me materially. There's something that happens there. The very gospel of Jesus is being preached from that space. And so long as the church in America ignores justice for those disadvantaged materially, socially, and politically, it won't see God. It won't see God. Or you will, but it'll be easily deconstructed, psychologically explained, sociologically dismissed, because it's gonna lack the thing Jesus is really having us do, which is meet with him, the living God, across the economic boundary of rich and poor. And into an engaging relationship of equity wherein materially advantaged people can give materials so that the spiritually advantaged people grant us the riches of the kingdom of God. This right here is an attempt in some way to bring the New Testament side of our church here like back to First Chronicles and bring the ark back to the middle. <laughs> David may have brought the ark back and said, this is the way you see and relate with God. But here we have to look at Matthew 25 and say, this is actually how we experience the sacred and real presence of Jesus. It's not through the ark. Jesus told us it's through our relationship with those who have less than us. At one point in redemptive history, right? At one point in redemptive history, in 1 Chronicles 13, it took a king like David to bring the ark back to the center. 
But today it's gonna take brothers and sisters of all socioeconomic backgrounds and coming together and realizing it's actually in our contribution to those who have less that we might encounter God. If we desire to meet God, if we want his presence at the center of our life as a church, it will be, yes, through a renewal of worship and the Eucharist and a deep love for the scriptures, but 100% it will be in our ability to know, love, and engage with those who have less than us. There's no other route. Jesus told us, this is where I will reside. And if you are struggling to find God, I love that you came to church. You will see God here at the table and here in worship. You will see God in prayer, but you will also see Jesus on the street and in risking yourself in relationship. And so how does God, these are the same questions I started with, right? How does God tell us we could see and relate with him? Okay, among many things, relationship with those who are experiencing material poverty. What does it mean for us to ignore the way of God has told us to see and relate to him? Among many things, it's to ignore those in material poverty. Because the same passage in Matthew 25 where he, he invites people in and says, actually, when you saw me naked and when you saw me hungry, uh, or you saw the least of these hungry and naked, that was me. He turns to the other group of people and says, you ignored the hungry and the naked and, and those who were in prison. And that was me. And so if we want to ignore the presence of God, one way among many things, one way we will ignore the presence of God is to ignore our brothers and sisters who are experiencing material poverty. And how can we prioritize seeing and relating with God? It's prioritizing our relationships with those experiencing material poverty. At some level, some, some of our, our cure for our, our, our lackadaisical discipleship and our confusion around God's presence, there may be many ways to remedy that, but I know one sure way, and it is to take a step into those relationships with those who do not have as much as we have. There's something weird that happens there. When I was a young youth pastor, I told you, I, I would see kids struggle with this all the time. God's presence, where, where is it? And I found if I could put our students in relationship with people who did not have as much as they had, some light bulb would turn on in their brain. And it wasn't the classic, like sometimes it's the classic like, oh, you know, I realized I had so much and I should really give more. That's altruism. But what I saw students realize was the spiritual riches that exist amongst those who don't have material riches. And in its pure form, uh, the gospel is preached that way in, in, in such a powerful and radical way that it can change a life. I mean, it changed my life as a youth pastor to watch that happen. It changed my whole heart as a pastor about like, what are we doing here as the people of God in the 21st century? And it's why this Advent we have ways in which we can all take a step forward. I, I don't know where you're at today. I, I don't know if you are someone who's experiencing material poverty right now. I wanna encourage you that the kingdom of God is yours and the riches exist with you. And if you're someone who has a lot, but you are far from God and you haven't been around church much, I, I want you to consider how God might be inviting you to take just one step towards those who have less than you. Many, many people in middle to upper class, they have zero relationships with anybody who has the anxiety I'm talking about that material poverty produces. The anxiety of like, where am I going to sleep next month? Where am I going to sleep next week? Where am I going to sleep next, tomorrow night? How am I going to get food? How am I going to get my kids food? A lot of people in upper and middle class 
have distant or no relationship with people facing that kind of anxiety. And I wonder what it would be like for us as a church to just take a step towards that. So I do not end sermons this way almost any time, but I, I, I need to do it today because I have a passion to see us as a church take a step. And I just wanna give you invitations, ways that you can step towards Jesus as he tells you he wants you to step towards him, which is amongst those who are experiencing material poverty. We have these giving trees in the lobby. Some of you, that's a big step. You've never just engaged your, your money, your, your, your little riches, you know, in just a way where you can grab a tag off the giving trees out there and just realize, wow, okay. Look at this, it's a toy for for a child in foster care. And it places you in that spot for just a second of like how you could reimagine your life and how you could reimagine gratitude and generosity and just, just taking a step at the giving trees in the lobby. Seth mentioned the Christmas community dinner. We believe that Christmas is absolutely a time for worship, but worship includes the giving of our whole life, not just in singing songs. So we will worship on... Uh, the 24th at 10 a.m. But on Christmas day, we realize not everybody has a place to go. And so we'll be the place to go. And so in the lobby, there's actually opportunities. If you can make it on Christmas day, we'd love to have you. But if you can supply food for that day, that would also be tremendous. If you can supply some of the needs ahead of that day before you go out of town to visit family, that's also a way you can step forward in this. My wife and I are gonna be at that Christmas day dinner. We'll be there with our son to just help and experience what Jesus is gonna do amongst us. We're gonna partner with City Team on that. It's gonna be, be a blast to watch the Lord uh, use this event to have us all take a step towards him. Wild Hope is a ministry maybe you don't know about here at Imago. Every Wednesday night from 6 to 9 p.m., a, group, a small group of people go walk around this city, pray and give practical resources to those experiencing houselessness. City team that we highlighted today, a great step for a lot of us is to, again, discern and think, okay, I give regularly here at Imago. I'm gonna keep that general fund gift going. What above that can I give? And I I love Lance and seeing that vision today. Man, you wanna give to Advent Conspiracy and just take a step towards the vulnerable and take a step towards the margins. That might be you. Or to join us for Night Strike. Our youth ministry, uh, first Thursday of every month, joins uh, Night Strike, which is a ministry under the Burnside Bridge that now City Team has adopted and is continuing on. And this is an amazing thing about Imago, stepping in as, a lead, as your new lead pastor in the last three months, to see our youth leading the way in this, to see them taking the first step. Some of us actually need to follow the young people of this church and join Night Strike, don't we? Yeah. And you can also visit more and see kind of the immediate needs of our houseless community that we're doing here at Imago. Some of us in Portland, I know, are social justice warriors. And something I notice about um, the friends of mine that consider themselves social justice warriors is that they often become weary warriors, tired. Weary of like, man, it's just hard work to do this work, serving the poor, you want to know why one reason the church of God throughout 2,000 years has never grown tired of serving the poor, has never grown tired of giving? The, 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 the history of God's people is amazing. When, when people with any common sense left certain circumstances and places and ditched people, the church of God showed up. Just reading Christian history can be really dramatic and dark, but it's really got some beautiful bright spots. Why have the people of God never relented on social justice? 
Because it's not just social justice. Because we are serving and giving and engaging and stepping out in faith, not just for altruism and doing good. We're doing this because we believe the very presence of God lives there. That's where we see Jesus. Why has, why, where, where are you going to get the emotional resources to be the social justice warrior what you want to be? Where are you going to get the psychological resources to continue to serve when things get so dark in this city? Where are they coming from? From altruism? From secular human, humanitarian efforts? Th- that can do something. There's some good there. We need Jesus Christ, the one who became poor for us so that we might become rich. The one who was born in a stable, who was born in the middle of nowhere in impoverished circumstances, who grew up his whole life and did not have a place to lay his head, he said. He had no bank account. He owned no property. He had no material riches to his name. And yet, he was the one who told you, when you see someone who is naked and ashamed, you will be meeting me, Jesus. And he said, when you lose track of this, and when you get so caught up in your own maybe middle class, upper class spirit, and you start becoming more insular in your faith and thinking all about me and how I'm doing, he says, I'm giving you this meal, this table, to, remember, to help you remember where real, real life comes from. Real life doesn't come from generating altruism within yourself. Real life comes from looking at a broken body and shed blood of Jesus and realizing the God of the universe stepped into humanity, clothed himself in our skin, made himself like us in every way, was tempted like us, was accused, betrayed, beaten, crucified, and left as he died alone. And he died and rose again to show to us who he is and the resources that he's given us to live in this world. And so if you are losing track of the gospel today, come to the table and realize, yes, we'll see Jesus in the streets, but the other place Jesus told us he would, you would absolutely see him is by eating this bread and drinking this blood where he sa- said, if you eat this and drink this, this is my body and this is my blood. The blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which is shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. So do this, Jesus says, in memory of me. In the same way that we're going to step out and serve those that we need to serve, we can step in and receive from Jesus the resources we need to go and serve where he needs us to go and serve. And so may you come to the table and meet Jesus. And as you leave from today, may you go and take a step and meet Jesus in the streets. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you. We need you, God. Father, we need to receive your grace today as we consider the invitations you've given to us through your scripture. Challenging things. Um, God, challenging things. But challenges that are filled with a, uh, a well of grace, just tremendous grace. Lord, sometimes I think about the invitations you've given me and I, can, um, I confess that I, I mess them up with performance of like, I can do this and you would love me. But I, 
I feel like the invitations, especially today, God, they're actually invitations to joy and they're invitations to life. And so God, as we consider and come to the table and we reflect and we repent and we receive, God, would you help us find um, the invitation here to joy, to a life that is everlasting, a life abundant, God. Father, I pray for our church, Lord, as we take a step in this area. um, I just pray that you would meet us as we take the step, God. Um, As we grow in generosity, meet us, God. As we grow in service, meet us, God. As we grow in um, taking a step into relationship with those who have less than us, meet us, God. You promised you would. We're putting that on you, Lord. And now as we worship and as we come to the table, we pray too, you would feed us and nourish us with that which we cannot feed and nourish ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.